today, uh, and as I was preparing, looking at it, I said, there is absolutely no way I'm going to really do justice to this passage at all. But we're, we're going to look at some highlights. But bef- before we do, since I don't have enough time anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to waste some of my time, but I'm going to use some of my time. Uh, if you happen to have a birthday on this day and I know about it, and our children are going to children's church at this time, and I encourage them to have a great time together. Um, but Lori Mayer turned 20 today. I mean, remembering her, her birthday. I talked about Maria a little bit older last, last time, so I thought I'd maybe make up for that. And then this week, um, Amy and Mike got engaged in the back. Why don't you just raise your hand over there? Um, and, and, and just to honor them, I, I came with a story that I'm going to switch the names just a little bit, just to prepare you for what's going to happen in the future. As Amy was getting to know Mike and his family, she was very impressed by how much his parents loved each other. They're so thoughtful, Amy said. Why, your, your dad even brings your mom a cup of hot coffee in bed every morning. After a time, Amy and Mike were engaged as we've just heard, and, and then they got married. On the way from the wedding to the reception, Amy be, again remarked to, on Mike's loving parents and even the coffee in bed. Tell me, she said, does it run in the family? It sure does, replied Mike, and I take after my mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know, as, as you think about this week, uh, we had Valentine's Day and uh, hope you had opportunity to share love and uh, affection to those you really care about this week. But as we think about love, uh, we really need to understand that God is the author of love. And so as we look in God's word and we hear about his plan for a life, he gives us that plan so that we might understand his love and his grace and his mercy for those who desperately need it. And as we've already said in the book of uh, Genesis, we understand that, that from the, the very beginning, uh, the reason that God needed to display his love and grace and mercy is because we are a needy people. As I shared last week, uh, we went through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians where uh, the church at Corinth and actually every church that names the name of Christ should be a place where it's a perfect place for imperfect people. And as you look at God's family, you need to recognize that God's family is the perfect place for dysfunctional people. And if we saw that last week, we're going to see that again this week. But really what I want to talk about today is, and it's in your outline this morning, if you don't, if you don't have it out, go ahead and pull it out, and we'll be racing through some things this morning, but maybe not quite as in-depth as we could, because we're now picking up the pace a little bit in our series in the book of Genesis. But I've entitled it, Faith with Doubts. You know, sometimes people like me are calling people to faith all the time, and we almost get the impression, if you, if you just truly believe that you'll never have any questions in your mind, you'll never struggle with anything close to doubt. It'll be such a conviction that it'll carry you on throughout your life here on this earth. But as we, as we know, if you're familiar with all the New Testament, that as Jesus was calling people to faith and sometimes asking them if they had faith, they would respond in kind of a, a, a mixed way. In Mark chapter 9, as Jesus was encountered by a man who, who was struggling, he said, well, do you believe? And the, and the response back is, I, I, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And, and as we think about faith, we need to understand a couple things about faith. Faith is both a, a noun and a verb. It's a noun in the sense it's, it's the object of what you put your faith in. It's the object of what you put your trust in. It's, it's, the, it's the content of what you really 
hold on to dearly. And your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. And so as we think in the emphasis of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, God is not simply concerned that people would believe, but they would believe in the one who is the truth. But faith is not only the the content of what you put your trust in, it's also the capacity to trust, to to rely upon, to to stake your life on. And and that's the dimension by which our, our faith has has a, a, a measuring degree to it. There are times where we, we come in full confidence to God, complete reliance, complete conviction that what we are believing in will come through for us and that God's promises are always true and that we can trust that everything will work out. But even when we come to that point, sometimes as we go through life, the things that we're confident that will work out, they don't work out exactly like we think they're going to work out. And this is really the journey that we have seen through the book of Genesis. As God calls people to faith and he draws them into relationship, the journey begins... But it is a journey filled with all kinds of challenges and obstacles. There are many times where it seems more like a roller coaster than a a journey of a spaceship hurtling into the sky. And so this morning again, we look at faith. And we look at how our faith is supposed to touch down in where we live. And hopefully we'll see some things this morning that are going to help us all Understand what, what is the process by which our faith is lived out in the, in the person who is totally faithful. But sometimes we are not as faithful as the one who is faithful to us. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 35. And, and we'll look at some things this morning in somewhat of a survey approach in these chapters. Uh, but we'll, we'll try to at least take some of the nuggets out of it. If you're familiar with where we are in Genesis, and even if you're not, I'll kind of give you a little bit of an overview. Is that God is now focused on... Abraham, and then Isaac, and now Jacob. And Jacob has now come to the point where he has brought in his sons who are going to be the foundation for the nation of Israel. There's one more on the way that we'll see in Genesis 35. But as they have now got back to the promised land, Jacob has seen God do some amazing things. He has kept him safe from a uh, a raving, angry uh, father-in-law, and he did that supernaturally where he, he told uh, Laban that he couldn't even say anything good or bad about Jacob when he encountered him after he took off kind of in the middle of the night. And, and then he was, as he was filled with fear uh, for his brother who had, who had screamed to everyone who would listen that he, at, when his father would die that he would take the life of his brother Jacob. And now he was going back to that land to encounter him. And God had healed that, that wound in Esau's heart. And now they were brothers again. Uh, but now that he had stayed in the land for a little while, he had picked a place uh, in Shechem, which was probably not the place that God wanted him to be, probably more in a place that we're going to see today, the place of Bethel. And his family just disintegrates. His daughter gets raped. His two sons deceive the men of that city, and there's a, there's a massacre of lives. And, and in the midst of that, the fallout is recognized. I'm now in a new land, and my numbers are few, and the people surround me are many, and they're going to want to kill me and every, everyone that is in my family. 
So at, at this point in his faith walk, we're going to see some things and we're going to see some things in a variety of different ways in these four chapters that we're just going to touch down in. It is what, what happens when your faith is filled with doubts? You know, what, what are you to do? And in some ways we can't control how our feelings are raging in the midst of the journey of walking with God. But when we have the, the feelings of doubt, what do, we, what do we do with them? Well, let's see that this morning. And I put them uh, in a variety of different ways to kind of put some handles on that. First of all, what kind of help can we get when our faith is in danger? And I'm using danger in a variety of different ways. And in Jacob's case at this point, his faith is in danger because his life is in danger. And when your life is in danger and you're overwhelmed, either it will draw you to a deeper faith or it will cause you to, to doubt your faith to the point you no longer trust in him. Well, what can you do? Well, let's look at what God does to help him trust in him when he is in a real danger. Genesis chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, and this is right after he is filled with fear because of all the people in the land had a reason, a justification to want to take his life and his whole family's life. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, the observation I want to make from this is as his faith was in danger, what God told him to do was to return to where he had truly met God. And to personalize it for all of us here this morning, when you're filled with doubt about your relationship with God and probably the question I've had more often than anyone else in, in terms of ministry, is how, how can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? How, how can I know for sure that when I die, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the, the place I want to go and not the alternative? How can I have any assurance that my, my faith is a true faith? I have a real relationship with God. And, and what God does to Jacob is what we all do, need to do for ourselves. We need to ask ourselves the question. Okay, if, if you have no assurance at this point, then you need to take a step back and, and, and look at where you truly met God. And as you ask yourself that question and you can't come up with an answer, then there's a, a good reason why you have no assurance. Because you have no relationship with God. Now, you can feel the same way about your relationship with God, whether you know him or don't know him, if you, if you can't remember that. But what Jacob said to him, he said, okay, what God said to Jacob, go back to Bethel. Bethel, the place where I appeared in the, in the heavens and, and the angels were descending. And he had that ladder going up and down with the angels descending up and down. And, and you became to realize that I had pre- prepared the way for you. Each of us this morning need, need to ask ourselves, is there a point in my life that I can look to where that's where I truly met God? For me, it was when I was eight years of age and I was surrounded by experiences of being in church, vacation Bible school, and hearing the stories about Jesus. And, and then I came to the point where I realized that I, I knew a lot about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. And there came a point in my life where I said, I don't want to know just about Jesus. I want to know Jesus. 
and, and I admitted my need, uh, that I, I admitted that I was a sinner. I, I, I really believed in my heart that when Jesus died on the cross for me, he, he died for all of my sins and rose again. And then that I could receive a gift that only he could give. But I had to make a choice. I had to decide to commit to follow Jesus as my Lord and my God and my Savior. And I expressed it to him in a very simple way. It was just a very simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I really want to know you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want you to rule and reign in all that I am. It wasn't magical words, but it was just an expression of the heart where I put my trust in the, in the God that I knew about but did not know, and Christ came in. The Bible says that in so many different ways, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to, uh, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And as Jacob's faith was in danger, God says, go back to the place where you met me. Do you have such a place? And I'm not talking about a, a zip code or a, a room, but, and I, I'm not even looking for a specific day. But when you nailed it down, that you had given your life to Jesus Christ. If that's not true for you, then, then your faith really is in danger. Because you don't have a relationship with him. But then he goes on with Jacob because in Jacob's case, he, he did have a relationship with God. But at that point, he wasn't experiencing the fruit of that relationship with God. He, he was filled more with fear than with faith. And part of the reason was because it wasn't that God had moved, but Jacob had moved. And, and so then we have the next step. Look at verse 2. And, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with them, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Uh, What does this symbolize for us? What does this illustrate? He rejected anything that damaged his relationship with God. Now, for most of us, we're saying, well, you know, I don't have any altars, that, figurines that I wake up in the morning and bow to. You know, I don't have all these icons that are, I'm worshiping. But there are things in our life that are drawing us away from him. It was interesting. Jacob had discovered that Rachel, his beloved wife, had taken these foreign gods from Laban, her her father, as they were journeying into the promised land. But he had really done nothing about it for probably a decade. There's no surprise that his family was was so dysfunctional spiritually because they were worshiping all kinds of things, just like we do. Things that that capture our heart and attention more than God. And and anything that that draws you away from God will damage your faith. So that when you're in danger, this God that you're supposed to rely upon is, is so covered with everything else that you hardly know him. 
Now, it's interesting, you say, well, why did he bury it? <laughs> because he didn't want to put that, I mean, actually, they were very valuable. And that's one of the reasons Rachel brought them. But because he didn't want to give those gods to anybody else. And there's some things in your life, probably each one of our lives, that if we were honest in terms of just looking at our 168-hour week, what are some things in your life that, are, that is crowding out your relationship with God? And those are the things you need to reject. It could be as, it could be as simple as how much time you are on the Internet, how much time you are watching things from a screen that has pictures in it, you know, and people are moving and talking. It could be a hobby. It could be anything. It could be good things. But they become an enemy of the best things. They become gods to you. I remember when, when sports was a god to me. And I, and I still have to get, be careful how much I saturate my interests in those areas. Is that is we think about our faith being in danger for... For Jacob, it was obvious. It was these figurines, these icons, these idols. And after 10 years, we've got to get rid of it. When your faith is in danger, return to where you truly met God. Reject anything that damages your relationship with God. Thirdly, recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. Because his faith was in danger, and, and all these things were happening. He said, but you know, I'm still living in, I'm still living in Canaan, and all these, all these people hate me now because we've just slaughtered these people in an unjust way. At this point, he had a trust that no matter what he would experience or receive, that, that God was still in control. Look at verse 5. Well, if, before we do it, let me just read again what he was facing. In Genesis chapter 34, verse 30, it says this. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. So, Jacob has a spiritual revival, but the fear is still there because the danger is there. There's no way to figure it out how God's going to fix this. And sometimes God doesn't tell us how he fixes it, but he just fixes it. Look at verse 5. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, I have no idea whether Jacob understood what God did. But basically what he did, he went to all those people who were probably filled with anger and wanted to murder Jacob and his family. And all of a sudden, they, 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 they weighed the consequences. And they were marked supernaturally by God himself that if you do that, you will face my wrath. We don't, we don't understand how God's going to fix things in our life. And if he will fix them in the way that we want them to fix them. But God is the great fixer. And when we are filled with worry, overwhelmed by the obvious, it is, it is not, it's not even within God's uh, struggle plan to be able to fix what, what we're in. And all he did was simply throw the, the, the terror of God, the fear of God among all the nations, and they would not touch Jacob. That's trusting in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. 
But there's one other principle I think we need to look at when our faith is in danger. And that's number four, is to remind ourselves of the bigger plan of God. The bigger plan of God. Too often, all of us get caught up in our own little world. The, the, the things that, that, you know, we are just so occupied by. And we forget there's a bigger plan. Look at uh, Genesis 35, verses 9 through 12. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan, Aram, and blessed them. And God said to them, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. Now, I put this, remind yourself of the bigger plan of God. God had already told Jacob, you're not supposed to be known as Jacob anymore. You are now Israel. You are not simply a person who is a deceiver, a heel catcher. You are now a person who struggles with God or even more probably appropriate in terms of the things he wanted to remember. You go through the struggles of life with God now because he was fully surrendered to God. I want you to understand you have a whole new identity. You represent me. You are part of my plan to fulfill the promises and the program of God. And see, that's how we need to look at it. It's not about the things that just irritate us and and. And madness in, in this world that frustrates us. Hey, there's a bigger plan. That bigger plan is God's plan. And he said, look, it, your identity is no longer Jacob. It's Israel. Look what's going to happen. Verse 11. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. Uh, the, the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I gave to you and to your descendants. After you, I gave this land. See, God's bigger plan is for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these other things will be added. But if we're more concerned about our own plan, then our faith is in danger because we miss what God wants to do in our lives. And the biggest plan is how are we helping God's kingdom be built? And any suffering that happens within that is, is nothing compared to, the, to the, the larger glory, global glory of what God is doing in the lives of people. Now, that sounds all good. Okay, you know, I'm kind of struggling in my faith. I kind of feel with doubt. Okay, I, I, I got to stop. Okay, have I truly met God? And if I haven't, let's get that done. Okay, if, if I'm really going to live for God, that means... Jesus is not only my Savior, he's my Lord, which means nothing should, should crowd him out, so I need to get rid of anything that damages my relationship with God. In the midst of not understanding hardly anything that goes on in this life, I need to understand that God is in control, I'm trusting in his sovereignty. In the midst of that, as I have my own agenda, my own things I want to pursue, I need to understand there's a bigger plan of God. That's not only my story, but God's story. And that all sounds great, and then life happens. And when life happens, that's when our faith needs to engage. Well, let's look at some of the things that happened right after we had this kind of spiritual revival in Jacob. And now our faith is not so much in danger, but now our faith is in despair. And I'm going to throw out one passage in the next two or three points, because this is the thing that we need to remember in terms of God's bigger plan. Remind yourself always of God's bigger plan as, as your journey continues with him. And what's God's bigger plan? Look at Romans 8, 28 and 29. 
And we know that all, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's probably the verse we quote more often is Romans 8, 28, that, that God, even the things that are not good, he can use for good because God has a greater purpose. But what is that purpose? Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, determined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, what God does is everything that comes in our life, God can use that to chip away those things in our life that are not like Christ. You know, how do I become more patient? I've got impatient people in my life, you know, people make, you know, people who just irritate me. How, how do I become more kind when I'm around, you know, facing my own lack of kindness and, and the need to, to now change who I am and, and, and through God's spirit? When we go through life, God uses those things to make us more like Christ. Well, when we uh, when we face adversity, that's the point where our faith is to kick in. His faith was in danger. Now it's going to be in despair. Let's illustrate that. And in, the, in, in understanding it from a, a global perspective, the reason things like these things happen that we're going to look at is because we live in a broken world. What happens to Jacob? Look at Genesis 35, verse 19. Uh, we'll back up a little bit. Look at verse 16. Then, then they journeyed from Bethel, and, and when he was but a little distance to go to Ephra, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she, she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, which is son of suffering, but his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, which means I want to remember him in a blessed way. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, it's hard to get the emotion at this moment, but we need to understand he's now in the promised land. He has his beloved wife, the life he, he, he loved more than any other of his relationships, and she was the one who died giving birth to the, the final 12 sons of the 12 sons of Israel. And, and she did it bringing forth a child. Now, if I had time, I'd try to paint the picture for you of what Jacob has just experienced. And, and as he would dis, were to see Benjamin every day from that day on, it, it would remind him of the blessed son he had, but also would remember that it was that son that cost him his wife. And, and see, when our faith is in despair, when we're distraught, we need to remember that, that God will cause all things to work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. And, and those whom he foreknew and knew, he predestined to become more like the image of Jesus Christ. But not only did his wife die, in Genesis 35, 29, then his father died. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to the people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. In verse 28, it says, now days of Isaac were 180 years. 
Now, sometimes when people get to a certain age, even though we know they're, we're going to spend a great loss when they die, sometimes we play the comparison game. Isaac was 180. Rachel wasn't even close to that. And that death would remind him of that as well. Basically, in that period of time in, in the Old Testament, you could basically take a person's age, if you want to compare it to your own age, cut it in half. Basically, Isaac died at the age of 90. Rachel was possibly half that age. When your faith is in despair, you need to understand there's a bigger plan. It's the only way to trust God fully and completely. But not only did his wife die, his father die, we find out later on his brother leaves. Look at Genesis 36, verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Here he had come to that point where he thought he was now reunited with his brother, and now his brother takes off. Time does not give us to, to really mention another tragic thing that happened in Genesis 35, but his eldest son, Reuben, you know what he did? He decided to, to lay with one of Jacob's wives. He had four wives. He basically committed incest. And it said all of Israel knew. Now, some of you might have had a tough week last week. They may want to compare to that week or whatever period of time that was. And yet, Jacob was called to trust God fully. And when that happens, you've got to retrace those steps. You've got to return to that place where you truly met God. You've got to reject anything that damages your relationship with God, holding on to things that you need to let go of. Recognize the absolute sovereignty of God, even though you can't explain why these things happen in the time they do. But God is trustworthy. And you need to remind yourself there's a bigger plan than the plan that you have invented for yourself. When your faith is in danger, when your faith is in despair. Thirdly, when your faith is despised. Now, we're going to introduce this morning, just introduce an individual that really has more written about him than any other individual in the book of uh, Genesis. Abraham is written throughout the, the entire uh, 66 books of the Bible. But Joseph is now going to be given you know, a spotlight, major role in the story of God. And as you think about that, what happens in Genesis 37 is, is that he is now um, grown up a little bit. He's probably a teenager. Most people think he's about 17 years of age. And he's, he is the beloved one. He is the, he's the cherished one. He is the, the apple of Jacob's eye. And, and it becomes well known about this. And partly it's because Jacob has, is, a, is a man uh, and a young man who has great faith and great uh, character, is filled with integrity, and we're going to see that as the days go by. But sometimes when, when your light shines a little brighter than somebody else, uh, people don't applaud that. What do they do? They despise that. And, and so as you think about living out your faith, sometimes people are, are, are not going to celebrate that. They're going to they're think you're a little bit too self-righteous, that you're more holier than thou, that you, you're always trying to preach at people. You're always trying to tell people what to do, or you're always making them look bad. Have you ever had that happen in a, in a situation where you're doing something, and you're making me look bad. Will you slow down? Don't work so hard, you know, in, in certain environments. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what Joseph began to encounter. 
And so his faith, which should have been should have been an example to his other brothers, was despised. In fact, we're going to just simply look at the reaction of that. And again, when that happens, what do you need to do? You need to remind yourself there's a bigger plan. The Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's going to be times where it's not just that you live in a broken world and broken things happen, but it'll be a direct relationship to your faith that you'll get pressure. What, what do we see in this dysfunctional family? Uh, look at Genesis 37, verses 5 and 6. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. And there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheep arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaves. And the brother said to him, shall you indeed ro- reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. What was the response to, to Joseph being a man of faith, seeing what God was going to do in the future? Is they hated him. Look at Genesis 37, verse 10. Well, at least, at least his father loved him more than anybody else. So he told it to his father a different dream. And his, and his brothers and his father rebuked him. So here, here is Joseph, who God has great plans for. He's kind of letting them in on the picture that God had given them in a dream. What's going to happen next? He gets hated even more by his brothers. And now his father begins to rebuke him. Then Genesis 37, 11. As it goes on, and his Brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Not only did they hate him, but inside him, they, they still wanted what he had. And it was well known to, to Joseph. And then the familiar part of the story, Genesis 37, verse 28. Then they enslave him. And if you know the story a little bit more, initially they decide that they are going to, they're going to kill him. And Reuben, who might have had a little bit of a spiritual revival, decides, no, we, we can't kill, we can't kill uh, him. And, and he devises a plan where they're going to throw him in a ditch and, or throw him in a, in, in a hole, and he's going to come back and get him later on. And, and that breaks down, and then Judah tries to help out a little bit. Uh, and that doesn't work. And what happens in verse 28? Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. You know what the price of 20 shekels of silver was in that day? It was the price for selling a slave. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Joseph is a man of character. He, he has integrity. He, he's falling after God, and God is revealing him all these things are going to happen next. And, and what happens? They hate him. They rebuke him. They envy him. And then they almost kill him and sell him into slavery. Who wants to sign up to be a a man of God or a woman of God who has much faith? God never said it would be easy. And and then you have Genesis 38, and it almost gets worse here. Here we have just kind of like a, a commercial for what's happening in Jacob's family before we hear the rest of the story about Joseph and how God sovereignly brings him up in terms of fully trusting him in the midst of all the trials he goes through. And then we have the story of Judah. And Judah, 
If you're not familiar with this, again, as you think of all the things that happen, God, how are we going to use this for good? Because it doesn't seem very good to me. And the story in Genesis chapter 38 is, is Judah marries someone he shouldn't have married and has a miserable relationship with that wife. And he has three sons, and his three sons turn out horribly. He tries to pick a wife that's somewhat more righteous than the wife he picked for um, his first son, heir, who made an heir and decided not to have a great relationship and had, was very wicked. And God said, I've had enough and took his life. And the, the history of that day and the culture of that day is that uh, since they did not have any children through heir, then the next son was supposed to marry uh, Tamar, who was his wife, and he doesn't want to do it. And so God takes him out. And, and Jacob is given the, the, the challenge, okay, you need to promise me the third son, who's too young now, will be the wife of Tamar. Well, Judah sends her away unrighteously, hoping that she's just going to forget about this, that he won't have anything happen. And, and, and now Judah is, you know, his wife is now passed, and he's kind of a little frisky, and he, he decides, you know, what's going to go on now? And he, he's going to go into a, a particular part of the land. And Tamar's watching all this and said, you know, he's not going to fulfill his promise. So I'm going to deceive him. So she dresses up as a harlot, sits at the roadside. Judah comes by, sees her, and says, you know, nothing else to do today. How about I'll just take her? So he takes her, lies with her, and wakes up, and she makes a deal and says, hey, I, you know, no payment. You've got to give me something. So he, he gives her something, you know, his, his staff and some things to, to identify who he, who he is. And then she takes off. When he comes back to settle, settle the, the deed, um, she's not there. So he kind of just forgets. It. He asks a few questions. Said, we don't know of any harlot here. And uh, because there hadn't been anyone, Tamar had just arrived on the scene. And so he takes off, forgets about it. And then Tamar comes back, his, his daughter-in-law, and now she's pregnant. What's his reaction? Very righteously says, okay, we'll follow the, the, the law, the intended righteousness of God, and we'll stone her to death. Then all of a sudden she presents the evidence that it was he who had bedded her. And his response was in Genesis 38. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. See, <laughs> your, your sin will find you out, but... The message of, of Genesis 38, I believe, is that your, your faith can take a detour. And, and you can be involved in all kinds of a horrific sin. But God can still even use that for good. Because His bigger plan is to shape you in the image of Jesus Christ. And, and above all else, God wants us as His people to see Him clearly. Yes, God is holy and we should never miss his holiness. But God is gracious and merciful. And, and what I want to share with you just to close this morning is realize that though your sin be great, it is not greater than God's grace. And Romans chapter 5 says that where, where, where sin abound, grace does more abound. And throughout the story of Israel and throughout the story of God's people throughout the ages. What God wants us to recognize in the midst of, of believing who God is. 
that God can take any life, no matter how dysfunctional, no matter how imperfect, no matter how much it's been damaged by sin, and use it for His glory. In Matthew chapter 1, there's still consequences for sin, but in Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And in the genealogy of Jesus, God sovereignly had picked Judah, who was a, who was a fornicator, who was so self-righteous, he could see and would admit to Tamar's sin, but would not admit his own sin. I mean, he was there when that happened, until the spotlight came upon him. But God took Judah, and through the line of Judah came the Messiah. And of the four women that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, every one of them was not a Jew. Filled with all kinds of transgressions and sin. And God's graciousness, His forgiveness, His mercy, used those lives to be the line in which Jesus came. What's the point about our faith taking a detour? The challenge is, is that you might take a detour, but what God wants you to do is take a 180 degree turn and come back to Him. That you can never sin so much that God does not have His open arms desiring for you to come back. If you look at the New Testament picture of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Here was one who had filled his life with everything dishonorable to his father. And when he came, the father ran to him. When your faith is filled with doubt. When it's in danger, when it's in despair, when it's despised. Or when it's taken a detour. The message in the Old Testament and New Testament about the living God. Is that God is faithful. And he wants us to simply trust and turn to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, any of us here this morning is undeserving of the love and forgiveness and mercy of God. The good news is that God is full of grace, full of mercy, and full of love. And He simply invites us to come to Him, to trust Him with our lives. Help us not to be so preoccupied with our plan that we miss your plan. Help us to live in such a way that we become more like Christ so that Christ can be seen in us, so that people want to come to you because they see, even in broken vessels, the light of Christ. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.